0: The yeah. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry we're having a couple of uh, technical difficulties, but uh, as as everything in COVID, we improvise, get better, and get it done. So uh, our apologies for keeping you waiting for a few minutes, but you know, hopefully, you had a good cup of coffee. Uh, this morning, we have uh, again John with his update on COVID nineteen. Um, And then we're gonna have a a great update on uh, adolescent medicine uh, by Dr. McCormack who will uh, give you. uh, you
1: And how about now, can you guys hear me? Louder please, how about that? Uh, Ahead is, uh, we have one of our uh, panelists. Two participants have raised their hands. They say they now can hear me. Next slide please. All right, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Good morning, Connecticut. Good morning, uh, the variety of other states who are watching. Um, uh, it's mid-July of 2020. I very much hoped that I would not be in front of you still talking about COVID, but we, it is what it is. We are here. So uh, let, let's get going. Next slide. We're, we're trying to advance here. Just give us a second. And uh, we've had a pretty good run without any technical problems. So uh, we've done well. Let's see. No, I'm still at ask the experts. Can I advance it myself? That, are they able to see
2: that however? No. Can I you know what, Steve? Let me start sharing again. Do you want me to share?
1: That might be the way to do about now? Can you see
2: it? Yep. Can you go back? Perfect.
1: All right. Uh, I think we're on. Um, Again, thank you for your patience this morning. Uh, We've had a good run with no technical problems, so we were due today. Um, The eye of the hurricane. Uh, We're still in the eye of the hurricane. Um, All of you know uh, there is a very robust national resurgence of SARS-CoV-2 infections in almost every state. Uh, It's not where we would like to be. Let's be frank about it uh, and not be in denial. Uh, We could be in a better place. The national response. a national response that mimicked what Connecticut, Massachusetts and other states have done um, could be used successfully in the rest of the country and it would dramatically reduce COVID-19 and reopening would be possible. Um, We are in a bubble in New England right now of low case numbers and low deaths. Uh, It's a good place to be. But this virus does not obey state lines. It is not a member of a political party. It doesn't care. It runs on math and infectivity. And we can anticipate there will be imported cases to New England and increased community spread as we reopen our economy in this area. It is going to happen, I'm sorry to say. Next. Now, um, can you advance that? Didn't work for me. Sorry, Up here we go. Oh, go back. Connecticut. We continue to be the best in the United States right now. Um, If you look at the top graph, those are the numbers of confirmed and probable COVID-19 patients. It's not zero, but it is low. And more importantly, our COVID-19 associated deaths have gone down to single digits. So we worked hard to get here. Um, We are in good place. What we have done could be a national model for other states that are struggling right now. Next. This is the Connecticut travel advisory. I had to change it twice during the week. Um, I added it and then they, we added states because, with the exception of the Middle Atlantic and New England and a couple of far west, upper Midwest states, um, the country is not doing well. These are a travel advisory of not to travel in Connecticut. And if you do travel to these states to come back and self quarantine, uh, you know, my advice, uh, you can look at this map. uh, My advice would be to travel local this summer. Uh, It is what it is. I wish I could say, uh, you you know, go wherever you want, but I don't think that would be good advice. So this is where the rest of the country is right now and cases per 100,000, more than 10 cases per 100,000 in those states. Next. Unfortunately, if you look at the United States overall, um, uh, again, uh, this is not going to go away. Uh, We are rocketing up in new cases. I wish I could have better news for you today, but I don't. So we're, we're having more new cases per day during the worst of the outbreak in April. And that is rocketing up with no sign of diminishing because the strategy to diminish this would be what was done in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New England, and the other states that are in good shape. So unfortunately, uh, this is where we are. This is two weeks old, right? 14-day incubation Birds, so You know new cases is worse than this. This is two weeks ago. Next. Unfortunately, there, there, there was a lot of swirls saying, oh, you know, the virus has changed. We have a lot of new cases. Nobody's dying. It's all great. Well, the answer is that's not correct. There is a lag time of deaths after the initial outbreak that was the same lag time, we are now seeing increased deaths in the United States and we can anticipate as ICUs fill up, as more and more people get sick or breaks into nursing homes, that we will have a lot more new reported deaths in the United States going forward. It is what it is. I wish I could tell you that's not going to happen, but it will. Next. Now, um, the USA is now predicted to have the most deaths in the world. Um, We're number nine in the world for cases per 100,000. But you can see that uh, earlier on, I think only a couple of weeks ago, I showed you this graph and we were thinking there'd be about 150,000 total deaths in the United States. It's now 224,000 and and almost everyone feels that Unless we do some fairly dramatic and focused epidemiologic response as a country to this, we're gonna be, uh, this is unknown, the number of deaths. I, I cannot tell you where this will go if we do nothing. Which is where we are today. Next. Now, why have the deaths lagged? There's a lot of press about this. Facts. Let's focus on the facts. The resurgence at the moment is in a younger population with a lower mortality rate. That will break out of that population to the elderly and vulnerable, but that is where it started in this resurgence. We also know better how to treat critically ill COVID patients. I cross my fingers. That's going to help keep the death rate a little bit lower than it was. Um, I told you already there's not been enough time for the deaths to show up in the U.S. It will. We have improved oversight and infection in our nursing homes and elderly facilities. I hope so. I don't know if that's true because we don't regulate them in a single way. Every state's a little different. So let's hope there's improved oversight in the homes that contain our vulnerable elderly. I don't know. Our ICUs are not yet overwhelmed in most affected areas, but when they get overwhelmed, we already know previously from the New York experience, the death rate will go up. And so we unfortunately expect significantly increased COVID-19 deaths in the United States in the coming weeks. Again, I wish I could say something different today, but I try to be factual. I believe that's a factual statement. Next. Now let's talk about a couple of states that are hotbeds right now and strategies one might use if we had a national strategy in, in, in the old world, just a couple of years ago. The CDC would sit down with the governor of Arizona, there'd be a plan made focused on data and facts of how you could reduce mortality and mitigate this. Arizona right now is beginning to level out a bit. There's been a lot of energy put into uh, wearing masks. Unfortunately though, deaths are shooting up as I said there's a lag period so this is why we know that deaths in the United States will go up in the coming months coming weeks so the newly reported deaths in Arizona in the lower graph are rocketing up but they're beginning to bend that curve a little bit which is good news next slide and when you look at the map of the outbreak in Arizona it's driven by Phoenix and Phoenix suburbs so if I were the governor I would sit with the cdc and you would make a plan for that part of arizona phoenix and you would really double down on that hard and you could probably get the arizona outbreak under control focusing on the phoenix metro area maybe tucson the rest of the state there's some native american reservations that are having a serious outbreaks and you would do the same kind of intervention at those hot spots so that that's where you would think an arizona strategy would be partnered with the federal government and the CDC. I don't think that's happening at the moment, but that's what I would do. Next slide. Now, Florida, unfortunately, is in a different situation. At the moment, there are 55 cases per 100,000. Actually, that went up. That's from Wednesday. And today, it's 58 cases per 100,000 residents. I think it's more than Brazil uh, at the moment. And it might be, it's possible Florida is the worst in the world right now. So uh, in the next slide, And the death rate in Florida, you can't deny this. It is what it is. You can try not to send the data to the CDC. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, the ICUs fill up, people die, and they go to the morgue, and you count them. And so the death rate in Florida is now rapidly increasing and will continue to increase. Next slide. Now, unfortunately, think about the Arizona map I showed you. Florida outbreak is now statewide. It is all over the state. And I cannot understand, there's no way that you're going to be able to control this in Florida without a statewide shutdown. Much like Connecticut, hard, fast, strict. And then in six weeks, you'll be in a great place and you can begin to figure out what you're gonna do next. So Florida's outbreak is now statewide. Uh, Every major metropolitan area, the panhandle a little less, but not much less. And so I think um, that's gonna be very important as the country begins to try to strategize getting this epidemic under control, what you would do in Florida is different than what you might do in Arizona. Next. Um, Now, this is a really important slide. This shows um, that Florida is heading towards about 20,000 deaths by the fall. It's a lot of deaths, okay? And the top line shows uncontrolled what we're doing now in Florida, which is pretty much nothing. The bottom shows you if there was a mandate to wear masks, and it doesn't have to be a legal mandate. It could just be billboards and public relations and people going out and saying the mask. If you did that tomorrow in Florida, you would save 8,000 lives. 8,000 lives is twice the number of people who died in 9-11. Okay, so if I were told, hey, would you like to save twice the number of lives who died in 9-11 by putting on a mask every day when you went out to be around other people? you don't have to go to Afghanistan. You don't have to do anything other than just put on a mask. I would do it. It doesn't have to be a law. We need to educate everyone to understand that this kind of utilization, remember it's math. If you, the R value is three for the virus, if you knock it down to one and a half with a mask, everyone wears 8,000 lives in Florida. do that all over the country, it's a lot of people saved. So I think um, this is the kind of data that needs to be pushed out to people, and people are good in this country and can make smart decisions if they have correct data. Wearing a mask just in Florida, 8,000 lives could be saved by November. Next. Now, we're gonna change um, a little bit. The epidemiology of Florida, as I mentioned, young people, and at the moment, it's very interesting. 30% of the positives are in children. Uh, we've not seen that before in other states. And you can see uh, in this graph, it's very different depending on your age. If you're less than a year, not many of those kids, it's not much of the positives. All the tests that are positive, only 7% are kids less than one. But as you get older, if you look at the 5 to 9 age group and the 10 to 14 age group, it's almost 30% of the new cases in Florida are in that age group. To me, that has meaning in school strategies and daycare strategies. One needs to get our arms around that and understand if the outbreak is in children in Florida, maybe we need to rethink how you would open the schools and daycare and other things. So this is different than what was seen in New York um, and it should really guide the strategy in the state. Next. And what's interesting about that is this slide's a little hard to see. Overall, when you look across the country and the world, children have low infection rates in households. So if you're in a household and you're a child, you're much less likely to get infected than an adult if there's, if there's COVID in the household. So think about that. If you're in the household, you're much less likely to get infected if you're a child. But in Florida, 30% of all tests are positive with children. What that's telling you is the intensity of household infection in Florida right now. There's just a lot of people infected and it's spilled over into the pediatric age group. Next. Okay, I can see that, but is that where you want me to work off now? Fantastic. Okay. Now, new data that's come out, and this was sent to me by one of our participants out in the community. Why aren't we seeing congenital SARS-CoV-2? And uh, I think this is a fascinating question. And in this study, again, this was sent to me by one of our pediatric participants, the community. Hey, Dr. Schreiber, you've got to see this paper. And he's right. This is a preprint. If you take placentas and you do molecular probes for ACE2 and other receptors that SARS CoV 2 bind to, they don't express it. So the SARS CoV 2 cannot bind to the placenta. That's the left clear graph. They're not expressing ACE2 receptor probably why the fetuses are not getting infected. And this is the good news of the day, which tells you that the pathogenesis, if this is correct, we're probably not going to see congenital SARS-CoV-2. And This is great news, and it's molecular-based. Next. Maybe not. Ah, okay. Now, deep dive uh, vaccines. I told you every day, every week, we're going to do a vaccine uh, talk. The platforms, remember, DNA, RNA, we talked about last week. You can make an antigen and give that to people. We talked about, uh, we're going to talk about that today. So there are a variety of vaccine candidates, almost 100 vaccine candidates in clinical trials. The strategy, we've talked about adenovirus, which is a virus vector that has the DNA, uh, the uh, genetic material that codes for spike protein. We talked about the RNA vaccine, uh, which gets taken up by our cells, and we make our own spike protein antigen and make an antibody response to that. And then we're going to talk about purifying spike protein and using that as a vaccine. Next. Now, oh, uh, the RNA vaccine, I do have an update. We talked about it last week. Um, This is the Moderna vaccine. It was published in the New England Journal, and they they gave it to 45 volunteers. And the far right down, they make antibody, and they make neutralizing antibody. Now, I want us to be a little sober about this. This is 45 volunteers. Um, This needs to be given to thousands of people before we can know that it's got efficacy and safety. But it's a good start, and that vaccine is moving to the next phase of studies in humans. Next. But another strategy is the recombinant spike protein vaccines. In this strategy, you've cloned the material. We know what the material is that codes for the spike protein. You put it into yeast, and the yeast express gallons of spike protein, and you purify it, and you can make a vaccine based on purified spike protein. It's recombinant. Now, this strategy next has been used uh, for years in the hepatitis B vaccine, and there are at least three, maybe more, clinical trials in progress using this strategy. Novavax in the United States uh, has a vaccine. There's a Chinese company in partnership with GlaxoSmithKline, and there's an Australian vaccine So this is a time-tested, well-known technique of making vaccines, and uh, this is moving forward. Next. Um, The advantages of a recombinant protein vaccine, we have a track record with it. Hepatitis B has been used in millions of doses. We know how to make this vaccine. They have good safety profiles and induce antibodies. There's already experimental vaccines for RSV and Ebola and some other pathogens based on this platform. And you don't need infectious virus when you manufacture this. Next. The disadvantages, the protein has to be correctly folded and glycosylated coming out of the yeast or or it doesn't make the antibodies the right way. So you have to be careful about that. You need adjuvants to be immunogenic. RNA vaccines are probably easier to make, and this is not as adaptable to the spike protein mutations. If they're mutations the virus makes, You got to make the vaccine all over again. So there's some disadvantages with the recombinant spike protein uh, vaccines, but a lot of advantages as well. And I look forward to presenting data soon showing uh, human data, showing that these uh, vaccines hopefully could be uh, immunogenic and make good neutralizing antibodies in people. Next. Okay. I hit you with a lot today. The good, the bad, and the ugly. July 17, 2020. I had hoped it would be only good, but it's not true. We continue to rapidly understand more about this infection. Every day there are more papers. This, this infection, this virus, is we only know about it for the last six, seven months. We know a lot about it now, um, and I'm optimistic. We are an innovative and clever species and country, and we will figure this out. The vaccine development is rapid with several promising candidates. but Realistically, a vaccine that we know is safe and efficacious is many months away, many months away. The American resurgence due to a variable public health response leads the world in new cases, and there is no end in sight in the United States currently. The spread of cases from epidemic states to states where COVID-19 has been controlled is likely. It is going to happen. It is probably already happening in Connecticut. Massachusetts, and New England, and other states where there's a low level of COVID-19. The politicization of this pandemic, in my opinion, has resulted in a much less effective governmental and citizen response, increasing the deaths and the economic disruption. Let's educate our citizens on the facts and the math and the data, and in my opinion, most citizens will make the right choice. But we need to actually do that education, and we need not to confuse people as we do it. So thank you for your time today. Um, it's been a little more intense than my usual talks because our, uh, our facts are changing. I look forward to seeing you next week. And then remember, in August, we're gonna take a break. Uh, thank you. And uh, Dr. McCormack, you are on. All right,
2: thank you everybody. So in starting off, um, we're gonna talk about how to support the adolescent and young adult population during this tough, difficult time for all of us, but it's especially hitting them hard. Um, So I wanted to start out with a reminder of the three stages of adolescent psychosocial development. So the early stage, which is ages 11 to 14, this is when adolescents are first becoming adolescents, right? They're gonna ask for increased privacy. This is the height of puberty. They have anxiety about their changing body. They're very egocentric, so when something happens they think about how it affects them. They are at the center of their world. And they also have very concrete thinking. Things are black and white, so either things are good or bad. And you can see how maybe that type of thinking could play a dramatic role in how they're interpreting things that happen with this pandemic. Middle adolescence is about age 14 to 17. This is when teenagers kind of get their bad reputation, right? They have frequent battles and conflict with parents for more independence and control in their lives. This is when normal adolescent risk-taking is at its peak. They're going to experiment. They're going to um, disobey parents to please their peers by taking risks that show off things. their peers and relationships really rule their world. And then they're also at this time, figuring out their identity and their career interests and what they wanna do in society for the rest of their lives. Then we have late adolescence, which is our senior year of high school kids and beyond. So our you know, college age people. Um, they are mostly independent from parents in most aspects of their lives, and their values and identity are mostly formed at this point, and their peer influence is less, um, but close relationships are still very important. Next slide. So I wanted to introduce, if you haven't already heard this before, some new terms of 2020. Quarantine has been coined as a teenager subjected to isolation for a period of time in an effort to prevent COVID-19 from spreading. I don't actually know who Coined this term, but I thought it was something you know fun to kind of think about and share. And then there's, you know, obviously t-shirts and um, marketing things that you can find on Etsy that apply to this concept. If you had a 13-year-old child that turned 13 and they became a quarantine this year, apparently, according to this t-shirt. Next slide. So I wanted to talk about some themes that I'm finding in my patient visits throughout this pandemic. Um, So the first one is uncertainty. And I think we are all experiencing a good dose of uncertainty, Um, but let's talk about how it affects teenagers and young adults. So they're seeking confirmation right now from school about the plans and expectations in the fall. And it's so uncertain, none of us really know what's happening and this is driving a lot of their anxieties. Um, It's also driving a lot of hopelessness. They expect that school is not gonna return to normal. We assume school is not gonna really come back to what it used to be before COVID happened. And a lot of fears and anxiety about their lives returning back to normal and getting to do the things they want to do. For our older teens and young adults, thoughts like Will there be jobs for my field after I graduate? So I have some college students that are in the theater industry or whatever it may be, and they're very worried, you know, was this the right major that I chose? And they're kind of trapped in this uncertain thought pattern. Will I be able to get that scholarship or internship because of how this has affected the world? Those are things I was counting on to further my career. Should I still go away for college so far from home? that's another concern you know so right now if you were planning to go to college in florida in the fall i would be very concerned about whether that was the right choice that i made and now the college acceptance process is well over and so um, people have made their choices about where they were going to go months ago and so that's a big concern for a lot of our older teens and young adults and then the other thing is parents are losing their jobs people are getting sick and so there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen with their families um, and then they are concerned about potential further social and activity losses. Um, so, you know, if, you're, if your child was going to be the lead in the school play, they lost that opportunity. Some of those opportunities only happen once in a lifetime, right? And so, that is another concern. Will they be able to go back to their team sports and other activities that kind of define who they are in their lives right now? Next slide. So uncertainty and its mental health impacts. Um, So there's this definition of intolerance of uncertainty, which means an individual's dispositional incapacity to endure an aversive response triggered by the perceived absence of salient key or sufficient information, and sustained by the associated perception of uncertainty. So basically, in simple terms, worry and fear of the unknown. Um, And then there was a paper that came out before the pandemic in 2018, that basically was showing an association between this intolerance of uncertainty and then worsening anxiety and worry in children and adolescents. Next slide. And that that uncertainty leads to more anxiety long term, not just in the, you know, in the pandemic time period, but potentially long term. Uncertainty obviously fuels anxiety. If you think about it as pre-traumatic versus post-traumatic experience. So Um, You know, there was a reference earlier to 9-11 and how many deaths there were. I was a teenager um, when 9-11 happened, and I remember it being a very scary time, and I think each generation growing up has had something. Um, But as adults, we've weathered worse storms, right? We've already been through our scary teenage years, and there's always been some sort of trauma somebody has experienced in life. And so we understand the ups and downs of life better than a teenager can right now because they haven't had an experience like that before and i saw this um, description of thinking about it as pre-traumatic versus something post-traumatic like how we reacted after something like 9 11. that was you know a big event happened a lot of people died it was very scary and a lot of decisions we made after that were in reaction to that trauma but this is more pre-traumatic right They are worried about anticipating more of a surge, um, but we don't really know what's happening, and so some of that is just furthering the worry and anxiety because we really don't know what to anticipate. So I really like this quote that I took from an article from Your Teen Magazine, which is an awesome resource I'm going to talk about later. This teenager said, it's like the beginning of a horror movie. I know things are going to be awful in a way I can't even picture. I don't know how to process that, where to put it in my brain so I can calm myself. Next slide. So, some other themes, Um, losses of normal activities and key milestones. I mentioned this earlier, but just to think about it, you know, from their perspective, some quotes from some other articles. I'm trying to deal with the fact that my high school career is over. Losing track and field, prom, and graduation sucks, and there's no way to cope with it because I'm just never going to get to do those things. It feels like the last four years of hard work have been for nothing. Um, And then another quote. We want to do everything with many exclamation points, but we're holding out for the prom or graduation that may never come. We are mourning the memories we counted on. Mourning complicates our call to action. Next. Other themes I'm hearing are boredom. So I think, you know, a lot of boredom is, is one stepping stone to other concerning things that teens have described to me. So what they've basically described is that their idle minds when they run out of things to do, stuck at home with their parents, is creating negative thoughts. So what I've kind of heard, some example kind of quotes from my visits. Now that I have less to do, I'm thinking about, and then fill in the blank with any of the following. My weight or body image, some of our patients with um, eating disorders or eating disorders have started to emerge more in this time because they have this idle thinking pattern and then they're able to see themselves more in the mirror or they see themselves on a virtual Zoom classroom all the time in their little video screen. Um, They have worsening depression symptoms or self-harm that starts to creep up when their minds are not as active like they would have been during school normal circumstances and anxiety. Um, And then starting to replace normal activities with unhealthy habits. So I've seen sports get canceled, right? And then these kids that maybe have a new focus on healthy eating, but it becomes disordered because they're like, well, I can't do all the workouts that I would normally do with my team, so I'm gonna make sure I stay lean and stay fit and focus on my nutrition, and then it gets to an extreme. I've seen that happen a lot, actually, over the past couple months. The, on the flip side, binge eating, because it's like boredom eating that goes to an extreme, and then other unhealthy things, coping with things like vaping and marijuana. Next slide. And then a lot of difficulties with virtual school. Now it's the summer, so this is not an issue I'm hearing about so much, But I will say the majority of my patients that I spoke to about it did not like virtual school. Things that they told me, teachers just assigned more work but with less help. Um, I couldn't look at a screen all day for school. Our school year ended with pass-fail grades so it was meaningless. You know, For our high achieving students, they care about things like that, right? I've heard a lot, I can't wait to go back to school in person next year. I've heard teenagers tell me that they wanna skip through this summer and just go back to normal, which is shocking to think that a teenager would wanna just blow away their summer and go back to school. Um, and then remember that with this, they've had perhaps loss of access to other school supports besides their teachers, right? Guidance counselors, social workers, their coaches, school psychologists, all of those support people play a big role in our adolescents' well-being. One analysis found that in adolescents who used any mental health services um, in, the past, in the number of years that they studied, 57% of them receive some mental health services in a school-based setting. So think about them losing access to those resources. I think the schools had tried to adapt as well as they could. I actually heard from some of my patients that they were able to stay in touch with school psychologists that were providing uh, mental health services, even from their virtual platform at home. And I think that's great, but I think not every school was able to adapt that way. Next slide. And then a couple of other themes I just wanna point out. Some people, some of my patients have described they don't really like the telemedicine visits. Um, I think the majority of people do, but I've heard from some patients that particularly for behavioral health, when it switched from being in person with the therapist versus virtual, some teens are not a fan of that. And it's particularly because they have concern about their privacy or keeping their confidentiality at home, um, that they can't really be sure that somebody's not listening you know, outside their door when maybe their therapist would have had them in the office and a parent would be in the waiting room and there would be a white noise machine outside so that nobody heard anything. Um, And they also miss that in-person connection, which I think we all crave, right, as human beings. Next slide. And then um, we wanna think about flattening the secondary curve. And I don't mean COVID resurgence, I mean a secondary curve of a wave of um, mental health needs worsening. So many have proposed that mental health conditions will increase during and after the pandemic in youth. Um, we don't really have data to support that fully just yet, but you know, um, I continue to try to read up on this and, and keep on the pulse of it because it affects my patient population so much. Um, Some experts have even suggested for teens and young adults to be more spared from some of the recommendations to socially distance themselves. However, in the slide that you heard from our infectious disease expert just a few minutes ago, teens might be a potential community spread source if they're a big bulk of the infection, but they're, you know, infectious positives, but they're asymptomatic. So we can't necessarily think of it, you know, as one patient population versus another, getting the rights to socialize versus not. Now that things in Connecticut have reopened, we want to think about finding the right safe balance of some social normals, but also safe social distancing. Um, So, you know, I've had teens say, you know, my parents won't let me go out of the house and do anything, but maybe is it okay for them to keep a mask on, walk in the park six or so feet away on a hike from a friend, you know, as every if everyone's wearing masks. So that's that's a question that we have to think about to make sure that we have some normal patterns in our lives. Um, And remember that mood disorders are often first diagnosed in the adolescent age group under ordinary circumstances before the pandemic happened. So we're kind of all expecting this to continue to get worse for our teens. Next slide. So how as pediatricians can we guide parents in supporting their teens. So first things first is letting them grieve those social and activity losses. So yes, it was horrible that graduation and prom got cancelled. Yes, I'm so sorry that your tournament where you were going to shine as a soccer star got cancelled. And letting them express that and, and mourn it like it's a big loss, um, but not for too long, right? You want them to move on. We want them to not get depressed. Um, Validating their feelings and encouraging them to express themselves. So, teens are very creative, and using some creative expression to feel their feelings is going to be the way to go. Um, Giving them some space. So, when everybody is um, all stuck together at home, teens still need their privacy, right? They would ordinarily have some time alone, and we want to respect that, um, because that's developmentally appropriate. Um, But also, as a parent, you'd want to check in often and talk with them, especially even if you're not working from home. So it seems like it's probably easy for those working from home that you're physically there to check in. But if you're not working from home, if the parent's not working from home, they probably want to designate times throughout their day at work to check in on their teen because they know they're going to be home alone rather than having the supervision of school and the supports of school um, or camp or whatever it may be. Encouraging structure and routine. And this goes for all children, um, right? So making sure everybody has a normal sleep-wake routine. Teens tend to turn out nocturnal during school breaks, and that's not the healthiest habits. Obviously, they can sleep in a little bit, but having some um, structure in when they wake up, when they go to bed, and the activities that they do throughout the day. It's not healthy for them to just lay in their pajamas in their bed all day on, you know, TikTok. That's not what we want to encourage. Um, And then encouraging parents to have honest conversations about the pandemic and the risks that come with it, Um, setting limits on screen time, but not too much. Um, So we always want to set limits on screen time, right? But in this case, technology is their lifeline to their peers and supports. And that's really important right now if that's the only way they can connect their peers. Remember I said peers really rule their world and it's really important that they continue to have that that support, Um, but keep news watching to a minimum so that it's not constant fear and anxiety. Um, Assigning chores and teaching them new skills. This is a great time to have teenagers learn some household management, learning to cook, learning to repair, learning to garden. Those are things that are gonna help them when they become more independent as adults anyway. Um, Encouraging time outdoors and exercise, if appropriate. And then making sure that parents are getting their own self-care. I've seen a lot of parents get fed up and they're like, I'm I'm done, I can't handle this. And making sure that parents, as as hard as that may be to find time to self-care, that's another thing to emphasize. Next slide. And then how we as pediatricians can support teens at PHYSINS. So the number one thing is probably my first bullet is for us to talk less and for us to listen more. Um, I've done a lot of visits where the teen is just kind of venting and about how angry they are that you know whatever got canceled and then validating it. And, and that's okay. You know Sometimes we as pediatricians do more than just traditional medicine medicine, right? Um, there's a lot of behavioral health stuff that we do and that's, that's okay um, to use a little extra time to listen to a, a teen, because that's how you're going to support them best. And then normalizing some of their anxiety and frustration right now, right? It's normal to probably be somewhat anxious and feeling uncertainty about what's going on and appreciating that. Um, and then we as pediatricians have to decide, you know, what's a normal amount of anxiety and worry and what's beyond that. and could be a developing disorder. Um, We still want to encourage health supervision visits, routine screening for things that teens should be screened for, and vaccines. Um, I will tell you, some teens are not following the rules. And this is, again, the risk health-wise for them is, is low, and they know that with COVID, and they are still teens being teens. So I have diagnosed chlamydia a bunch of times in the past few months. I have given emergency birth control, Plan B, in the past few months. So teens are going to do what they're going to do, and as much as we want to encourage them to be safe and educate them, um, we also want to make sure we don't assume that they're not doing risky behaviors, and we want to address those things as we normally would during our adolescent well-child visits. Um, Supporting the continued connection to peers. So if you hear that, you know, parents decided to take away access to the internet and phone as a punishment, you know, maybe sometimes that's appropriate, but maybe thinking about, is that the best choice of punishment right now, given that their peers are so important? Realizing teens may not be following guidelines to social distance in other ways. I've heard teens tell me that they're sneaking out to share vape products or marijuana with their peers. And inhaling something back and forth that you share is probably like one of the biggest ways to, you know, spread COVID. So making sure that ordinarily we wouldn't want them to vape or use marijuana or whatever it may be, but really emphasizing a further safety issue with that given the COVID pandemic. trying to maintain some confidentiality if you're doing telehealth visits. So what I've been doing is just saying, just like normal in person, when I'm talking to a parent and a kid with a telehealth visit, I say, just like normal in person, I would talk to your teen one-on-one. We're gonna do that You know, now that we're talking during um, your, your visit while you're at home. So if you know the parent or teen can go to a separate room and I can ask them some prep questions in private, Um, And no one has had a problem with that so far. Um, And the teen will like find a separate room and I'll be like, let me know when you're ready to talk privately and they'll be like, okay, yeah. So actually I had sex last week and I had a question about it. And I'm like, okay, you know, so you want to make sure that we are there to support teens the way we ordinarily would. So making sure that you try to um, encourage confidentiality as part of your visit if you ordinarily would. Um, I would say if you only have one minute though in your visit um, left over, ask about mental health and suicidality. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest thing that we can do to help prevent negative outcomes in this patient population, to screen for that. Um, And then educating parents on signs of severe depression or or suicide and, if needed, providing resource for a mental health crisis. Next slide. The other thing I wanted to point out is this pandemic has had a unique impact on some specific populations that are relevant to our patient population. Um, There was an article about the um, effects on the LGBTQ um, population saying that they're, they're facing some unique challenges. So perhaps loss of access to those helpful peer groups or other supportive resources, and they might be isolating at home with family members that are not supportive of their identity or or whatever it may be. Um, and this article, you know, emphasized the need for more virtual resources and supports specific to this patient population. Um, and remember this patient population may have had healthcare inequities before the pandemic. Um, so and there's um, always biases that are out there, unfortunately, even in healthcare. And now their access is lower. Um, so that's another unique thing to realize. Next slide. Um, So I just wanted to mention with our last few slides to some um, good resources for teens. I mentioned earlier this one, Your Teen Magazine. Um, This is um, a a mix of different authors in here. Some of them are parents, some of them are psychologists, some of them are pediatricians. Um, And it's a really good resource. It's for free. You just have, if you google it, you just have to put in your email and it'll get emailed to you in a virtual format um, they've had two issues so far that have po- focused specifically on helping teens during the pandemic. and I think it's it's a great resource to look at. Um, it's meant to be for parents, but I think as pediatricians, it has a lot of valuable content for us as well. Next slide. And then um, some other resources, so our, my organization is the society for adolescent health and medicine as our national specialty organization if you go to their website they have a list of resources for parents and teens and there's also ones for pediatricians specific on this patient population Um, they have things about how to help teens cope how to help parents um, parent teens during this pandemic how to discuss social distancing with teens using the right language for them um mental health and addiction resources for those issues during specifically during the pandemic Um, so that's a really good um site to check out so if you go to adolescenthealth.org you can find those COVID specific resources next slide Um, And then there's just some other ones. There was one published by UNICEF about for teenagers about how they can protect their mental health during COVID-19. The World Health Organization also had one about um, a Q&A for adolescents and youth. So basically, teens post questions, and then there's an expert that responds and publishes the questions answer on the website specifically for youth. And then there was also this VoicesOfYouth.org campaign um, where teens can kind of blog or express themselves or send in and art um, related to how they feel about COVID-19, and that's a that's a pretty cool site as well. Um, next slide, and that that's all that I have. So um, now I think we're ready for questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you uh, very much, Jessica. Uh, as you can see, we have a uh, incredible talent here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, uh, she's been here for a very short time, but uh, it's made a tremendous impact. And, uh, along with uh, Dr. Bennett, uh, the, the adolescent team here, at Connecticut Children's, is just uh, a, a really, really excellent, top-notch. So thank you. So we have uh, uh, we have 10 minutes for questions, a little bit shorter. And uh, uh, but we we were going to move forward. The first one is just a statement, and I and I'll echo that that you know we need to wear masks properly. Um, many people do not cover their noses, and so absolutely, you know, that's something that needs to be done. So thank you for the reminder. Um, John, this is for you. What are the co-infection rates with influenza that we know of? And they're asking specifically about South America uh, where it's currently winter. I'm not, I haven't seen anything published, but I don't know. If you yeah,
1: know. I've not seen any data on that and I'm not sure we know yet um, whether COVID-19 and influenza co-infections, uh, what that means, what it's like, how often it happens. So no data yet. Um, we may learn it ourselves in the coming months. I don't know how bad the flu will be this year. So I don't know the answer to that yet
0: yeah and and uh, you know some of the tests that we will be looking at uh, in fact will have uh, dual uh, dual testing for influenza and covid and, and that's something that's coming down the pike a question uh, jessica this is for you and uh, it, it, this is from dr Zellner. It said teens are not that much different from their adult role models who had bad priorities so so comment on the you know, the role models from parents to their kids and you know what is the what is the role there for them.
2: I think that's a really hard thing. I mean so if parents are not are in disbelief or not not looking at the factual evidence around COVID spread and the risks with it, I think it's really hard to um, expect the teenagers to to follow a different pattern. But again, we as pediatricians need to be factual and talk about this in our patient visits. Um, so I would encourage everybody to just to do that
0: and, and talk to the teens about it. Great. Thank you. Uh, John, a uh, question about uh, this new breathalyzer test for COVID, uh, which I think I've seen a couple of things come out. of. Uh, well, they I think they what they do is they measure metabolites from uh, COVID. Any comment on this breathalyzer? I, I probably wouldn't use it at the moment until we see good data showing its sensitivity
1: and specificity. I do think we have really good data for the PCR showing it's highly sensitive and specific. Some of the ELISA data are, are better now. It's not as sensitive as the PCR, but it's reliable if it's positive. So right now those PCR first ELISA maybe for a larger outbreak uh, measurement and control, but the breathalyzer right now I probably um, would be skeptical until we see good data.
0: Um. Just this would be for you. Uh, so, you 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 know you've you've said that it's important for adolescents to get back to from a from a mental health uh, perspective back into their routines, uh, but schools may not open, and, and uh, so it's kind of a dual question. One is does John think we should open the schools? That's a loaded question. I think I know what he wants to say, uh, and then Jessica. But uh, so, you know, if, if schools do open. Any recommendations for safety for those kids and if, and if it's schools do not open how do you begin to deal with the adolescents with that stressor
2: so I would say that if schools do open I mean I would hope that every school has a safety plan in place with social distancing and requiring masking hand sanitizer frequently throughout the day um, you know that's more of a probably a public health related question but um, emphasizing again to teens that the risk is there and they they need to be diligent just like anybody else about masking and all of those things if schools don't reopen i mean i think there's talk about them having some partial virtual partial in person with different classroom spacing and things like that so whatever it is it's not going to be normal and i think being realistic about that with teens um, but thinking about how to make the best of it i think in the spring when everybody kind of just got pulled out of school, teachers and schools didn't have uh, the technology or, or the time to really come up with the best plan to nurture learning in that setting. But now that they're having a lot more time. So I think whatever it is in the fall, even if it's not in person, it's still gonna be better. Um, but whatever it is, we have to try to support that structure and routine um, to make the learning experience and the social experience as normal as it can possibly be. So, so to help with their learning and development.
0: So, John, should schools open?
1: You know, I would answer that um, it depends. Um, As you look at the data in Connecticut currently, uh, we're in a reasonably good place. Uh, And probably the thought process about how to safely reopen schools is appropriate. I look at some other states. Look at Florida. where 30% of the new cases are in children right now. I just can't imagine knowing the community spread you have in that state, how you would reopen schools safely and not bring the disease back home to parents and grandparents and others. So I think it depends on uh, how the epidemic has been controlled. In New England and Connecticut right now, I think it's a good discussion to have. And uh, to your point, uh, how do we do it safely uh, in a way that reduces and mitigates risk? So that discussion I know is going on in Connecticut. It's probably appropriate. Uh, I'm not so sure it's appropriate in states with enormous community
0: spread now. Thank you, John. For you as well, there are a couple of questions, uh, one from Dr. Altman, one from Larry Scherzer about antibodies. We've uh-huh. um, read a couple of reports this, this week where the, uh, with mild cases in particular, the antibody response doesn't seem to be long-lasting, at least in serum. Any comments on that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and we don't really know yet, but coronaviruses in general, if you look at other coronaviruses, uh, the antibody response is transient, you know, a year maybe, and then you'd need to get re-immunized. And so we know coronaviruses in general seem to elicit transient protection antibodies, and then it fades. This is probably similar to other coronaviruses. Now, unfortunately, we don't know yet how much antibody you have to have to be protected, and does it only need to be neutralizing, or can we measure it in a We have some unknowns still about protection from this infection but if it's like other coronaviruses it may very well be that antibodies fade uh, fairly quickly over time
0: just to sort of an add to that uh, in, in a study that we're currently doing you're part of it uh, with the Jackson labs we, we now have data from from several kids especially younger kids and they seem to develop tenfold higher antibodies than adults yeah. and so there is some which is not unlike uh, other diseases, like even vaccination with HPV. We saw higher antibody responses. So any comments on that in terms of pediatric responses, which are different from adults? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a good question. If you saw one of those tables I showed you, um, not the one about Florida, the one showing if you have an infection in the household, how likely are children going to express that infection? In the younger age groups, it was very low. And clearly there's something about the immune response to coronaviruses in that age group that we don't fully understand and is probably more robust than older kids and adults. So it's a great question, Juan, and one which also might help guide our school policies. Uh, you know, it may turn out that younger kids in, in early preschool and elementary school are, are safer to go back to school than teenagers. I mean, I don't know the answer yet, and the immune response to this virus is still a learning phase for us.
0: And we're currently studying this. Uh, from Carrie an uh, interesting question about the types of gloves that we use. And uh, She says, some school nurses are nervous about being able to get nitrile gloves. They want to know if vinyl is okay. Uh, if not, as hand-washing or using Purell before and after caring for patients, a good substitute. So vinyl versus I, I
1: nitrile. I think uh, any barrier is going to be good. Vinyl is going to work just as well as nitrile. I think the nitrile gloves are a little more comfortable. But I don't think there's going to be a difference between the barrier that's presented by either glove. So they're both fine. Hand washing is really important. If you use gloves before and after, and if you're not able to get gloves, then hand washing before and after touching someone. So they're both very, very important.
0: Okay. Um, what about opening colleges for freshmen? <laughs> I know.
1: You know, um, it's a great question. They're coming from all over the country. Some from hot spots, some from others, um, not so hot spots. I mean, you know, it's opinion. I can't. Give you a policy, and I just don't know how you're going to do it right now. If the country, if the entire country was like New England, we had a little bit of cases like the EU, uh, and it wasn't a lot, you could reopen colleges. I, I think when you've got states with 55 cases per 100,000 and states with one per 100,000, and you're going to mix all those kids together, maybe you could test every child, every student before they come. They could get two tests over seven days, and if they're negative, they could go to college. I guess there's strategies we could try to use um, so the colleges could be safely reopened, but we sort of need a science and data-driven strategy nationally about this. And and I don't think every college should have a different strategy because then you're gonna have spread of COVID-19. So it's a great question, Juan. I wish I could wave a wand and give you the magic response, but I can't.
0: Thank you. And uh, just it's almost nine, so we have time for just one more common question. Um, and and John, this is for you. Is it possible that children's brains and other tissues are subreceptive to COVID-19? Anything from autopsy? I, yeah. I haven't seen anything, but I don't know if you have.
1: I'm not sure about this. I just, I didn't show you. I was gonna present, we didn't have enough slides, but there actually is a study from England of kids who did get sick from COVID. You know, it's a small number do. And their MRIs were positive. They had brain inflammation. And two of them ended up having sequelae, neurologic sequelae. So. I think children appear to be resistant. You saw young kids don't seem to get it much in a household that's already infected. But if they do, um, I don't think their brains are immune. And as I said, I'll show that next week. I'll show you that study where unfortunately, there were some UK children who had brain uh,
0: inflammation uh, post COVID that was quite significant. It's a good question. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so Jessica and John, thank you very much uh, for your great presentations. And uh, thank you for the audience to for joining us today, next week on July 24th, we have uh, Ashley forshed who's going to join uh, Dr. Schreiber, and they'll, they'll talk about the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and so we'll have a, a different perspective uh, if, if that is absolutely related to this pandemic, the additional side effects. So thank you, everyone. Stay that's safe. That's Enjoy the 100-degree weather this, uh, this day or this weekend, and then we'll see you back uh, a, Friday, a week from today. Take care. Bye-bye. See you next
1: week, everyone.